Welcome to Hudson Institute. Welcome to this panel on Reconstructing Iraq, Challenges Ahead. I'm Jonas Provo-Plesner, a senior fellow here at Hudson and your moderator for the event. I'm very excited about chairing uh, this panel surrounded by so much expertise and authority on the subject with Iraqi ambassador, senior researcher at RAND, Linda Robinson, and Hudson's own Michael Pregent. I'm sure we'll have a great discussion with lots of important insights. Uh, on top of uh, Hudson's own live streaming that we always do, we have the honor of having C-SPAN uh, doing this event. Um, so another greeting out to all the viewers out there. Um, Reconstructing Iraq is our theme today. The good news from Iraq is the military defeat of the uh, terrible terrorist organization ISIS by the Iraqi military in collaboration with the International Coalition. Yet, the task ahead is as daunting as any military campaign. Now Iraq needs to rebuild and to heal its communities. Challenges remain from funding continuous stabilization efforts to the even larger resources needed for reconstruction over the coming years. Increased funding was one of the goals of the recent Iraqi Reconstruction Conference in Kuwait, which secured around 30 billion from public and private actors. Significantly there, the Gulf countries stepped in. Kuwait hosted the conference, um, which is an interesting uh, testimony with its own trouble history with the Iraqi invasion back in 1990. Um, so congratulations to the Kuwaiti for, uh, for, for, for doing this. Um, at the conference, Saudi Arabia also became a new large donor to Iraqi reconstruction. Um, it shows that new sort of regional configurations are at play. But as we said, there are still challenges ahead, which is the title of today's event. Let me mention some that we can return to in the debate. First, continued post-conflict stabilization is still what's needed for Iraqis displaced persons to return to their homes. Over three million Iraqis have returned, but more weight in camps or temporary accommodations. Bringing back normal life, removing unexploded bombs and mines, getting electricity and water back is still among the essentials in many areas. Equally important is now reconciliation, both at national level, leading to political accommodation, and at the local level when people return and must rebuild their communities. It's important to underscore how reconstructing Iraq should simultaneously contribute to reconciliation and political accommodation, particularly for Sunni uh, communities. We also want to discuss the US's approach to Iraq, including sort of the novel uh, Trumpian approach to burden sharing. We saw that displayed in the fact that the US did not contribute reconstruction funding at the conference, which was seen as nation building. President Trump wants to build infrastructure at home in the US and tweeted demissively about the seven trillion the US has already spent in the Middle East. Instead, the US encouraged other partners to step up, including Saudi Arabia and the private sector. Still, the US maintained a military presence in Iraq with a view to securing that ISIS does not resurface. The question of Iranian influence in Iraq, including through some of the popular mobilization forces, the PMF, is also a continued topic for US policymakers regarding Iraqi policy. In the Iraqi political debate, the continued presence of US military is increasingly also a heated topic leading up to the Iraqi parliamentary elections in May. Elections which where it's not all guaranteed that the current prime minister or body can muster another governing coalition, a theme that our panel will also touch upon. So if you want to read also more about some of these challenges, my colleague uh, Michael Preachin and I, together with our research assistant uh, Kate Goh, did a paper on it, which I think was available out at, um, at the entrance in paper copy, and it's also on our website. Um, let me also mention that together with another Hudson colleague, Peter Rao, um, 
I have written an op-ed in Defense News on how this Trumpian burden sharing plays out in Iraq. Uh, again, there should be a paper copy available. Um, and for listeners out there, um, again, uh, look at the web page, Hudson's web page. Let me now to introducing our speakers. First and foremost, we have the privilege and honor of the Iraqi ambassador, Farid Yassin, on the panel. Um, on top of securing Iraq's important relationship with Washington, and there being Iraq's top diplomat here, Ambassador Yassin has a very interesting personal background. Um, you were originally trained as a physicist here in the, in the US as well. MIT, right? And, and um, later he left science and became involved in human rights advocacy, um, also in Iraq, and then later became joined sort of the Iraqi National Service and held several prestigious positions both home in Baghdad. And, um, and before joining us in Washington, Yassine served ambassador to France and speaks French, which we have the pleasure of doing uh, sometimes. Yep. So a great pleasure to have you here uh, on the panel. Um, Linda Robinson is a senior international and defense researcher at the RAND Corporation. Linda's uh, research is on the campaign to counter the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria and the stabilization which should follow the military campaign. I personally really recommend Linda's RAND report from last year. It's really still pertinent on and with the title Making Victory Count After Defeating ISIS based on really solid uh, field research. Linda has just come back from a recent trip to Iraq and will share some of her observations uh, from that trip with us. And then I have my Hudson colleague, Michael Preachant. Uh, Michael is a former intelligence officer with over 28 uh, years of experience on security, terrorism, and counterinsurgency, particularly in the Middle East, where he served in Iraq. Uh, Michael had the opportunity to be invited to participate in the Kuwaiti Reconstruction Conference, so he can provide his observations from that experience and more broadly on Iraq's uh, trajectory. Um, so the run of show is the following. Uh, each panelist uh, will now provide their initial uh, thoughts. Then I'll moderate a couple of questions up here on the panel uh, based on these challenges that, I've, uh, that we've set out. And after that, we'll open it up for questions from, uh, from all of you. So Ambassador, it's a great pleasure once again to have you join us here at Hudson. Uh, we look forward to hearing your remarks. Well, thank you first for inviting me. Um, and I'm really happy to be on, on this uh, really interesting panel. <clears throat> Many years ago, I used to be a lowly consultant for RAND, so I'm honored <laughs> to be on, sitting next to you this time. Um, it's not easy to talk about Iraq because it's such a complex issue. Uh, uh, many of the dimensions that cover this evolution of state are all interconnected and interconnected also in history. Uh, so what I want to do is, is uh, basically go over um, at, at, at sort of a high altitude of where we stand, um, and then um, I'll leave the uh, issues that you want to dig into to the question and answer period. And uh, I say from the outset, there's nothing is off the table. You can ask whatever you want. Um, so first of all, um, the Iraq of 2018 is not the Iraq of 2004 or 2003 or certainly 2014. Uh, what happened between 2014 and now uh, is really re remarkable. It's, it's quasi-miraculous. Um, in 2014, we were at the risk of losing the country. Baghdad was almost taken over. Uh, uh, Erbil was within a mortar's blow of, of, of ISIS. Uh, and were it not for the heroic um, attitude of our 
uh, Iraqi Counterterrorism Service and the uh, appeal of Ayatollah Sistani that uh, called for the Iraqi population to rise up and save the country, uh, we would, I wouldn't be here to talk about uh, where we stand and how we stand ready with the help of the international community to rebuild the country. Um, so what happened is really re remarkable. Um, the Iraqi army that has now defeated ISIS is not the Iraqi army of 2014. Uh, the governance structure uh, of Iraq is, is, is different from what we had in, in, in 2014. The political discourse that we have is different from we had, what we had in, in, in prior to 2014. Uh, one of the interesting things that we'll talk about is um, our forthcoming elections. One of the interesting things that are worth mentioning uh, in, in these elections is that the eagerness of people to have cross-sectarian, cross-ethnic uh, coalitions. And in fact, this is a trend that has been consolidating over, over a period of time. If you recall, in 2010, uh, the electoral list that garnered the greatest number of votes, uh, almost the greatest number of votes, not bad, was called the state of law. Okay. Uh, the other one that got was the national list, Wotaniyeh. Uh, the, uh, one of the lists that had a very um, identity-based uh, name in 2010 changed its name to the list of the citizen and more than doubled its score. This means that people are, want this kind of evolution, want governance, want, want good things to, 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 to be implemented by their governors. Um, so why, why, are, why are we in a different situation than we were before? Um, first of all, uh, there is a sense of Iraqi empowerment that did not exist previously. Um, uh, I often heard people tell me that uh, you know they have a sense of uh, um, anxiety because uh, we are where we've been before. Uh, military intervention to quell an uprising in 2004, again in 2009, political conditions weren't, weren't, didn't follow up. Uh, we're in the same situation right now, but what the main difference is that in 2004 and 2009, Iraqis were not the ones doing the bulk of the fighting. In 2000 and from 2014 until now, the fighting has been done, and we have the casualties to prove it. it was done almost entirely on the ground by, by Iraqis, obviously supported by, by very ably by, by the coalition led by the United States, but nonetheless, the fighting of the dying was done by the Iraqis. Uh, same thing, uh, if you look at the, uh, the conference the reconstruction conference that was held in Kuwait uh, uh, just last week. Um, <clears throat> this is not the first reconstruction conference that we have uh, on Iraq. The first took place in Madrid in October of 2003, and it generated a large number of um, billions of dollars in support. But the difference between that conference and the one that took place uh, just last week was that in 2003 it was entirely run by the CPA with the help of the United Nations and the World Bank. But the, the Iraqis who were present, and actually I was, I, I was, I was not in that conference, had a marginal, non-speaking role. Uh, whereas uh, in this conference, 
the bulk of the work, the bulk of the expectations were, were, were based on assessments uh, done by Iraqi entities, the planning ministry, the Ministry of Finance, uh, that came up with the numbers, uh, obviously with the help of international organizations uh, like the World Bank and uh, Ernst & Young, to come up with with what is needed to, to rebuild the country. So there is, there is a sense of, of, of Iraqi empowerment. And uh, in fact, uh, to go back to uh, the, the uh, conference, that, uh, the, the Kuwaiti conference, that raised a large number of, uh, of billions of dollars, 30 billion almost. Um, I've heard people criticize it for uh, not containing a lot of money in terms of direct aid we're not looking for that. We're looking, mostly it consisted of loans, but what we're looking for really is something that can empower us to, to rebuild the country. Um, you mentioned that we had defeated ISIS. Uh, it's not enough. I think what the objective that we're trying to achieve is to make sure that the conditions that can lead to a reemergence of ISIS or anything related to it no longer prevail. Uh, and this will imply that we will have to uh, make sure that Iraqis, from wherever they are, uh, have uh, a sense of ownership of both the political process and the economic process, uh, and so that they have a share in their country. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, given the backdrop of what we what we have, but one of the first things that we're trying to bring about to make this happen are our elections, um, and the government is really intent on holding them on time. Uh, the date that was set was the 12th of, uh, of April, uh, sorry, of, of May, barely three four months from now. Um, um, again, we're doing things at the very last moment, but I think we'll we'll, we'll hold on to the timeline. And um, that's one thing. The other thing is, of course, the reconstruction. And uh, I would like to go back to uh, an incident I lived through uh, that shows the importance that the Iraqi government attaches to this. Um, when uh, ISIS attacked Iraq, uh, we were left for three or four months actually standing on our own. Uh, until the international community came to our help in uh, late August, early September of 2014. And in 2014, the uh, president of France decided to hold a conference in support of Iraq and went to Baghdad and met with uh, the prime minister to invite him to attend that conference, uh, actually by the president. And the prime minister told him very clearly uh, that ISIS is not the problem, the main problem. We will defeat ISIS. He said, the real problem is rebuilding after ISIS. Uh, he gave examples of what ISIS had done. Uh, he even mentioned the fact that they had destroyed uh, football fields in the cities they've, they've occupied. And he told the president of France that uh, if you could use that conference to call for the creation of a fund to help the rebuilding of the liberated parts of Iraq. And in fact, uh, sometimes things take, take longer than what you plan, but 
this is what the conference in, in Kuwait uh, brought, brought about. And the final thing that I want to mention about this is that uh, this conference is the first in all the conferences that were held by the World Bank, uh, to my knowledge, in which the private sector uh, played such a key role. And this is something I take actually great pride in because uh, it turns out that uh, people view Iraq as a country that is worth investing in. Um, the, the, the cornerstone of what was presented at, uh, at the conference in, in, uh, in Kuwait were something like 15 or 20 uh, projects, major projects throughout the country uh, that were considered to be bankable. Uh, of course, a conference like uh, Kuwait is not an outcome. It is the beginning of a process that we will have to implement. Uh, and uh, we are intent on implementing it. Uh, and the first step to do that is to spell out the problems that you expect to face in its implementation. And I think uh, there's a consensus amongst the international community and the participants that the Iraqi government did that. Uh, you know, uh, putting the finger on the heavy bureaucracy that we have. Sometimes I actually have to struggle with that. And it's, 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 don't let me get started. Um, and then a, scour a scourge that really is uh, almost often related to terrorism, which is corruption. Uh, recently, there's a there's a, uh, uh, ra rankings that were issued by uh, one of those. Uh, listing organizations where Iraq was uh, 12 ranks from the worst country in terms of perceptions of corruption. I think in reality we're a little better than that, but uh, honestly it is, it is our intention and the government is taking steps to do that to, to move, to move in, in the right direction so that people can come and invest and find it easy to, to build in Iraq and, uh, and uh, um, discover what we are uh, looking for, which are win-win solutions. The final thing that I want to say, uh, and that's a point I've used in, in, uh, in several, uh, in, when, when talking to representatives of, of donor countries, um, don't think uh, of the money that you're investing in Iraq in terms of foreign aid. It actually should, could arguably be considered as defense spending. Because turning Iraq into a, uh, helping Iraq return to becoming a stable, prosperous, united, uh, unified country will only uh, bring stability to the area, prevent the emergence of non-state actors that can uh, target um, this country or Europe or, you know, civilians everywhere. Um, I think we'll get there, but we need the help of the international community, and fortunately, it, it, was, uh, it, it did deliver. So thank you. Thanks, Ambassador, for those uh, really insightful and also uh, great personal uh, remarks, and hopeful as well. So that's, uh, I think, a great start for us here at the, the beginning. And I now turn it over to, um, to Linda, to Linda Robinson, who can both sort of uh, tell us about her last trip to, um, to Iraq and also delve more into the question of sort of moving from stabilization that you're really a great expert on and to reconstruction and what are some of the conditions that for, as you put it in your report, making victory count after ISIS. 
Thank you, Jonas. And I want to thank the Hudson Institute. I think it's extremely important um, that events like this are being held uh, in Washington because I think that the tendency is to check the block and say Iraq is done because the military operations are done and turn the focus away. There's so many competing challenges right now uh, in the world and that are clamoring for U.S. attention. And I have been um, uh, going to Iraq. I was there at the outset of Operation Iraqi uh, Freedom, and I've spent a total of three years on the ground in the country since that, uh, those very first days. Um, I've made my 23rd visit uh, in January, as Jonas said. So I'd like to just give you a few quick bullet points about my perception of the current situation, uh, where they are in the path, what are the key things for the international community in the U.S. to focus on. And I'll leave, since Michael was at the uh, Kuwait conference, I'll leave obviously those um, uh, observations to him. Well, you um, can help me out on those, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we, I would like to say, uh, start with good news. Extraordinary performance by the United Nations Development Program and its leader who just departed for another hotspot, Yemen, Lise Grande, uh, has been one of the most effective international uh, bureaucrats and diplomats that I've ever met. And we, uh, this is a small arm of the UN. The USAID and a lot of coalition partners put the money into that organization to implement projects. And I think they uh, should receive uh, some credit for what has been achieved, of course, with Iraqis being actual implementers. Uh, but I think it's very important to note, and we'll talk more about the stabilization model that I, has been employed there, because I think they're important lessons for elsewhere. Just as the military operations contain incredibly important uh, lessons for future conflicts, because as the ambassador quite rightly said, this was a war fought by Iraqis um, and with U.S. and coalition support. General Votel, the CENTCOM commander, is used by, with, and through as the bumper sticker for this uh, type of campaign. Um, and I was out there in the field through, through much of this, and I think that um, it's a viable model, and it's very important for Iraqi confidence moving forward and the very considerable Iraqi nationalism that we need to remember uh, is really the hope for the future uh, for many of the difficult things that still have to be worked through. And I've seen uh, both pride by Iraqis uh, in what they've accomplished, and I've also seen acknowledgement of the U.S. help. So I think perceptions of the U.S. in Iraq have also turned around vice uh, some earlier periods in our long engagement there. Uh, with regard to the um, Nineveh province, which we wrote a report, Making Victory Count, and thank you for acknowledging it, we did case studies of stabilization in the Ambar cities to Crete in Salahuddin, but we really focused on Mosul. 
uh, partly because it is the second largest city uh, in Iraq and the largest with the Sunni majority, but also because it's a true political symbol. I think as Mosul goes, it's going to be a political bellwether to Iraqis about whether they intend to help that part of the country and the Sunni minority of the country get on its feet and find its place in this uh, Shia majority country. So I think it's rife with um, lessons. Uh, my, my key um, visual that I want to bring you from our trip there is how heavily contaminated Mosul is with IEDs, explosive improvised devices. And this is a technical prerequisite for moving forward with a great deal of other stabilization activities. The unmasked UN Mine Action Service personnel estimate that 90% of the public buildings in Mosul have at least one bomb in them. Many of them are just laced with bombs. You've all seen the pictures of West Mosul destroyed. 16 neighborhoods of Mosul have been destroyed. Now, there's a combination. Certainly, ISIS did its work by planting bombs in everything from buildings to baby cribs. But there also is unexploded ordnance dropped by the uh, coalition that represents a very severe hazard, not only because it's unexploded, but those bombs actually cracked the water pipes of the Mosul city system. So they've got some very severe infrastructure damage as the result of the coalition uh, effort to help support the military campaign. Uh, also, one, one action taken that I think it bears calling out, uh, the US-led coalition also uh, bombed the supergrid of Mosul, of Nineveh province at the outset of the campaign. And that, uh, of course, is critical to bring back online to fully supply, resupply electricity. We talked with the engineers and they have a very complicated project of restoring all the power stations from the local level out to that supergrid. Um, it's not an easy task. And for those of us there in the early years, we remember with General Petraeus and the power plant of Dora of Baghdad, you know, these are massive undertakings. And this is why I do think it's critical for the US to continue to have leadership and put some of its enormous wealth into projects that need to happen to enable Iraq to move forward. So I do have some critique about the entire handoff of this to the international community because we've, we've helped can, can, uh, destroy some of these things and I think we have a moral ob obligation to help uh, rebuild them. Uh, two other quick points. There are 2.6 million IDPs. They're not all going to return home. Some may find some other homes, but what they can't do is stay in the camps or stay in places where their livelihood is precarious. And these are mostly Sunnis. So this has profound uh, political ramifications for whether these people are taken care of. It's obviously, first and foremost, a government of Iraq responsibility. Um, but we have, again, thanks to the UN and their implementing partners, some very good tracking data. We know where they are. We know the numbers. And we need to keep the focus on that. Um, the other point. Um, it regards security. The, the uh, number and quality of hold forces is absolutely critical to the success of the stabilization effort. Um, and I'm happy to report one good news from West Mosul, the federal police 
which are primarily Shia and which were not welcome, have now been moved out and the Iraqi army is moving in. And I think it's very important for Iraq uh, to understand that local police are the best way to secure and uh, police the Sunni areas. And that means emphasizing the recruitment of local people, do not engage in local uh, collective punishment, paint them all with the brush of being ISIS supporters. You need to hire these people back on and train them and put them to work. The Iraqi army has a much better embrace and of course, the counterterrorism service, um, the uh, Mosul Moslawis put up a billboard thanking the counterterrorism service for coming to rescue them. Uh, of course, there's also the very delicate issue of the popular mobilization forces. And those are now enshrined in law as a fourth service, security service of Iraq. But there's a very important and controversial questions that have to be dealt with regarding the degree of Iranian uh, influence, control, and direction there. And we will talk more about that, I'm sure, in the Q&A. But that's something that must be, I think, dealt with to truly stabilize Iraq and help it be both secure but also politically at peace. Uh, we'll, I'm sure, talk more about elections. But I think it's very important that as Iraq is moving forward with elections rather than postponing them. I think it's an, a juncture at which the youth of Iraq are going to come out. We talked to a lot of politicians and the cross-sectarian alliances, and the number one issue is corruption. And the government, I think, has rightly stated that's its number one priority. But tackling corruption will both gain the trust of the Iraqi citizens and bring in the much-needed foreign direct investment. And I, I hope and uh, whoever is elected and comes out of that very complex Shia political dynamic there, because it will be a Shia-led, it's Shia-majority country, uh, that whether it's Prime Minister Abadi or someone else, if they do not take seriously the need to tackle corruption in a, a, a absolutely front and center way, um, they will lose the confidence of their people in the international community. <clears throat> Linda, thanks for, for those comments. Also for bringing stabilization to where it's really concrete, removal of mines, reestablishment of electricity, all these things that are really the things that make people able to go back to their homes. Uh, Mike, uh, I'd now turn it over to you. Uh, you had the pleasure of, as we've mentioned, uh, been at the Kuwaiti Reconstruction Conference. And you also, of course, have a, a, a long track record on Iraqi issues. So um, your thoughts. Well, thank you, Ambassador, for being here. Appreciate it, and thank you as well for being on the panel. Um, I just I got to go to Kuwait, which is great. The last time I'd been there was 1990 during the Gulf War, so I got to take a, a second picture next to the the two. What are they called? The, uh, the two Spirit Towers. Uh, this time, what's that? There you go, the Liberation Towers. And uh, it was good to be back, but more importantly, it was good to be able to see this this international. Uh, coalition come together, not only in the private sector and not only, you know, having 64 nations there, but also, like you said, Ambassador, seeing the Iraqis out front talking about the country, talking about not only economic opportunities in Iraq, but also about uh, the humanitarian situation. Uh, one of the things that was, uh, the first day of the conference was, was great. The press was able to ask questions of not only Prime Minister Abadi, but also the Kuwaiti uh, Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister, and also the Foreign Minister. The Iraqi press asked some of the toughest questions, 
some people have, have warned, hey, don't go on a stage with Mike Preejan. He's going to ask tough questions. Well, the Iraqi press was tough. They were great. Uh, but their questions went unanswered. And a lot of their questions were based on uh, reconstruction in the areas such as Mosul and, and Nineveh and Anbar province, and also the IDPs. Why won't we delay elections uh, to allow IDPs to come back? Again, you mentioned 2.6 million are still in these camps and want to vote, and the majority of them are from Nineveh and Anbar province, Ramadi specifically, Fallujah, and Mosul. So the questions were great. Uh, so let's talk, let's look about, let's look at the, uh, the visuals. You know, Prime Minister Body had a great stage uh, to, he looked, we use a term in the United States, he looked presidential. He looked, he looked in charge of a country, and he had the legitimacy of 64 countries backing him up by being there, and also the private sector companies. But there was also a, an air of what are we getting ourselves into if we do these things, not only from private, private sector investors and defense contractors that are very familiar with uh, bakshish, a term in Arabic that means kickback. And I set an example in 2008 when we were working with the Ministry of Energy to try to get a General Electric contract in Baghdad that would provide 24-7 electricity in Baghdad. But because GE didn't offer bakshish or kickback, it went to Simmons. And Simmons was only able to produce a third of that capacity. So these were things. And again, I said this in 2008. That's because it was after the surge. It was after Al-Qaeda was decimated. It was after we built the Sunni resistance in the Sahwa and the Awakening. It was after we allowed for political accommodation and reconciliation. We started focusing on what we're doing now, economic investment, uh, capability, these important things when you have uh, that you do in post-conflict uh, societies. But again, as we all know, Security is tied to economy. This is, a, this is an economy that's tied to its security, the Iraqi economy. This is, uh, this is something its neighbors know. This is something the United States know, knows based on our, our time there, our investment, our, our blood and treasure sacrifice, not to mention the Iraqi sacrifice, of course. I was an embedded advisor with the Iraqi army and the Peshmerga, and we saw them fall all the time. And, we were in armored vehicles and they were in pickup trucks, yet they were going in the same direction towards the enemy. And so there's a lot of cost in these things. And what we, do, we don't want to see is security backslide. And I think there was a, a, a hint of that at, at the conference. Um, the, the good thing about the position of Baghdad is that a lot of the reconstruction, as you mentioned, is being outsourced to, outsourced to the UN and its NGOs and its other, its other groups. I mean, I, I have the document that basically you cited everything uh, that's going on in, in Iraq where the UN is focused, you know, the 54 neighborhoods in Mosul, some are 16 are heavily damaged, 23 are moderately damaged, and, and 14 are lightly damaged. Again, this is not what the focus of this conference was when it came to the private sector investment in Iraq. This is where the UN was focused on. This is what... Um, UNAMI was focused on, and this is where the Iraqi press hit Baghdad hard. Said, where is the talk from the prime minister about these things? And of course you can find it. You can find those things, but it wasn't out front. I had a chance to, to listen to, to Samuel Oskari talk about economic investment in Iraq. Al-Raji. Al-Raji. Talk about economic investment in Iraq. And he talked about four main areas for economic investment, and it's 
he called Iraq's oil sector the breadbasket of the Iraqi economy. Then he talked about uh, construction, telecommunications, and transportation. And again, this, this caution that, that was in the air at the conference was, well, how much influence does Iran have in Iraq? And again, that's the whole reason for this conference is to, is to make the argument, just because Iran borders Iraq doesn't mean it should have more influence than Kuwait or Saudi Arabia or, or Turkey or other groups. It, Iraq shouldn't have to lean towards its, towards its, uh, its eastern border. Um, and this conference was about that. And if you looked at the, the focus of the investment from Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, Kuwait's focus was on Basra, Um Qasr, these places, because it makes sense. It borders the area. That, that is a contentious area in the past, and this is a place to actually shore up economic investment. It also is a place to actually uh, use leverage with not only Iran, but with Iraq when it comes to economic investment. And the Saudis, I was asked earlier, or I've been asked uh, over the last couple of weeks about Saudi, uh, Saudi economic investment in Iraq and what does it mean? Does, is it, is it, a, is it a, a U.S. lever to curb Iranian influence in, in Iraq, or is it simply going to be what happened in Lebanon and Syria where the Saudis invest, yet Iran still gets to do what they want? And those are the issues. Uh, we hosted a member of al-Hikmah party. Uh, and I had a great conversation. Two hours of conversation. Again, again, also warned not to meet with, with this reporter <laughs> or this observer of Iraq. But a great conversation, and he, he said something that resonated with me and, and ties directly to this conference in, in Kuwait. He said that the only way to counter Iran is if Iran is a strong economic power. And Correct. That, correction, Iraq is, a, is a, a strong economic power, and, and he's exactly right. And the best way for Iraq to be a strong economic power is to ensure that much like what the IRGC does in Iran, they're not able to do in Iraq. Uh, the four main areas that the IRGC uh, has its tentacles in the Iranian economy is oil sector, transportation, telecommunications, and construction. The four areas that Prime Minister Abadi and Sami al-Araji uh, asked investors to go into were the oil sector, telecommunication sector, the construction sector, and the transportation sector. So the United States, as we talk about blood and sacrifice, and we talk about the optimistic levers or the optimistic uh, way forward by using our levers is to actually help Iraq by maybe warning Iraq that investments that go into Iraqi companies that have any ties to an IRGC front company will be subject to US Treasury uh, sanctions. And that's, that's a strong tool. It is also an insurance policy for investors that when they go in, they'll be protected knowing that the companies they're doing business with have actually have no ties to the IRGC. And I'll just leave that there because there's not a lot of evidence that there are ties to that now. They're just simply, if Iran's doing it in its economy, it's doing it in Syria's economy, in Lebanon's, and in Yemen's. It's been doing it in Iraq since 2003. Legitimate soft power, legitimate uh, economic ties, but there's also questionable ones as well. So again, an insurance policy. Now, the one thing the Prime Minister Abadi said that was, that was also a security blanket for investors, 
and also something that alleviates a lot of their concerns, is that he is going to look at getting rid of bakshish, getting rid of this kickback, this 10 to 20 percent uh, kickback that, that secures a contract. And he is, is setting up a commission, and he wants to see it gain a lot of momentum after the elections. And that brings me to the elections, and I'll kind of try to wrap up here. The, the upcoming elections, again, 2.6 million Sunnis displaced because of the, the campaign against ISIS and what ISIS did, uh, asked for a delay. The Iraqi press asked many questions about why isn't the election being delayed. And of course, you want to be able to say, we want to keep it on time. We want to do it the right way. The elections are important. When, Mr. Ambassador, when you mentioned uh, you know, cross-sectarian and cross-ethnic coalitions, we're seeing those, and they need to win. Um, the issue now is the, the Fatah party. Is that, is that the right party that I'm talking about, the one lead, led by uh, Hadi Al-Amri? So currently, that party uh, has the militias that you warned about. Uh, AH, Kitab Hezbollah, Bada Corps, uh, participating in that party. And when we talked to Hikma, they, they, they said, listen, we, wanna, we don't want to work to moderate. Uh, we want to work with other parties, coalition parties, in order to marginalize this party. Am I saying it right? All right, the Fatah party. The problem is, the problem is now, if the Fatah party, the Fatah party hasn't won yet, but it already has its minister in charge of the Ministry of Interior in Qasem al-Araji. It already has the commander and deputy commander of the Hashim al-Shabi in Hadi al-Amri and Abu Mehdi al-Mohandis. A designated U.S. terrorist who, who commands Kitab Hezbollah is the deputy commander of the Hashim al-Shabi. Again, Sistani volunteers are, are great Iraqis that did, did all the right things. Problem is they started falling under this command and control structure. We can talk about that later. But the issue is if Fatah wins, these ministers stay in place. If they lose, do the other parties have enough power to push them out and get somebody that could send a signal not only to investors, not only to, to Americans and, and NATO, because NATO's actually voiced concern. Before we go in, we want to make sure Fatah party doesn't win. We want to make sure Hadi Al-Amri is not the prime minister. Uh, those, are, those are important things. But in the forming of these coalitions during this election, in order to to make the economic investment opportunity more, more stable, the security situation more stable. Uh, these coalitions aren't talking about replacing these ministers or getting rid of um, Mohandas as the deputy commander. And again, uh, one of our biggest problems is the U.S. training and equip program. Again, 10, 10 U.S. tanks fall in the hands of Kitab Hezbollah through the U.S. training and equip program, through the MOD and MOI. Uh, U.S. government denied that for the last two years, and now <coughs> there's evidence of it and we're trying to get it back. These aren't captured ISIS tanks. These are MOD OPCON tanks to IRGC Quds Force militias. Um, I just want to hear some of the political parties in Iraq talking about how they're going to stop the influence and the saturation of IRGC Quds Force proxies like Badakor, Sabal Haq, and Kitab Hezbollah when they have such prominent positions in the Iraqi government today. And that is causing concerns, not only for the NATO training program in Iraq, and not only uh, are they warnings and indicators of security backslide in Iraq, uh, 
they they just they just cement that argument that Iran has more influence in Iraq than it should. And 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 just a quick a quick uh, antidote. Twenty-seven Hasid al-Shabi IRGC Quds Force militia members were killed south of Kirkuk, north of Baghdad, uh, vicinity of Hawija. Um, and, and this is terrible, but it was cheered by some sectors of the Iraqi population, the Sunni Arab population of Nineveh, and some in the Sunni Kurdish population of, of the KRG-controlled areas. In that, ISIS killed IRGC Quds Force militias, and the IRGC Quds Force militias deserved it. And that, that right there, especially with this operation taking place in, in an area where there's oil, uh, there's infrastructure, and it's, there are still ISIS pockets, uh, is concerning not only to investors, not only to NATO allies, but also to those of us, like you point out in your article, that want to ensure that this victory is permanent and not simply a reset of conditions that led to ISIS to begin with, with an increased dynamic in that now the U.S. is no longer trusted as much by the Kurds and by the Sunnis, but also that Iran has more influence than it's ever had. And I'm happy to be wrong about all of that. I just want to be comfortable in saying I was wrong. Thanks, uh, Mike. I actually wanted to uh, also tease you up before I, I open it up on the U.S. administration's sort of new approach to Iraq, particularly on burden sharing, uh, which Linda also mentioned in her comments and I did in the, at the outset of, of still being the largest humanitarian and stabilization donor but not contributing to reconstruction. On the security side, looking more whether a NATO mission could be part of ways of perhaps stepping down sort of U.S. engagement. How do you see all that right. combined with, uh, with this? Well, what the, what the administration says publicly can actually hurt what we're doing privately in Iraq. When I say privately, in meetings where we're uh, assuring guarantees and making promises to the Iraqi security forces we're working with, that we're training with, and, and also as we try to, to reestablish these levers that we've, we've had in the past with Baghdad. Uh, my concern about the current administration's strategy is that in the State Department, Iraq has fallen almost completely out of the Iranian influence talk. Uh, State Department has said Iran's influence in Syria and Lebanon and Yemen and left Iraq out. And that's concerning uh, to, to generals like General Votel at CENTCOM, uh, to, to generals in the, in the Department of Defense. Uh, the other part of that is also the president's strategy to feed ISIS, call it a victory, and get out. Outsource reconstruction to Iraq, maintain a minimal presence. Again, these Iraqi political parties are calling for the exit of American forces. And now there's a, a U.S. policy where Hashid al-Shabi militias cannot be within 20 kilometers of American bases or where Americans are training Iraqis. The problem is the Hashid al-Shabi militias that they're most concerned about, the IRGC Quds Force once, bragged that they can wear any uniform within the Iraqi military. And that's concerning to, to our 4,000 trainers there and special operators and advisors that the force they're training could, could easily be infiltrated or inf uh, uh, infiltrated by a, an anti-U.S. Uh, militia-directed killer or, or assassinate, a green-on-blue incident, so to speak. And that's concerning. 
I I want to be, to believe that this administration doesn't want to go back to Iraq again. But by saying, don't give me my own war, you get one. Meaning President Trump doesn't want his own war in Iraq. Well, you, you get one. Obama didn't want one, and he got one. Uh, you know, I don't want 10-year-old Americans to be in Iraq when they're 20, fighting al-Qaeda 2.0 or 3.0 and ISIS 7.0, and, and also being told you can't come in because it's a situation like Syria where the U.S. is uninvited, even though this is an existential threat to to the United States and to the U.S., these terrorist organizations that keep popping up in these ungoverned spaces in, in the Middle East and North Africa and Southwest Asia. So the administration, um, again, I've listened to the generals, like, like you mentioned earlier, listen to the generals and then challenge the generals to come up with solutions. And again, uh, nobody wants to stay in Iraq but we've stayed in Iraq this whole time, so maybe we should stay in some capacity, some normalized treaty where there is a U.S. base there that can do exactly these things when something like this pops up, augment the Iraqi security forces, provide capabilities and intelligence, and be able to decimate something that shouldn't have been born to begin with. Thanks, Mike. Um, let me now ask a question to sort of the whole panel, and you're also allowed to sort of comment on the, each other's uh, intervention if you want to. Um, so one really sort of s simple, but probably uh, hopefully a little bit difficult question would just be, what in all this do you then see as sort of the greatest challenge for, um, uh, for Iraq moving uh, forward among all the things that we've sort of outlined up here at the panel? And I'll start with you, Ambassador. Well, the, the biggest challenge uh, that Iraq is facing actually is, is um, the fact that it has to address issues uh, with tools that need building. So, for example, one of the one of the, one of our difficulties in the last you know ten years of wars that we've had is that we were at the same time engaged in a war that we were building our army at the same time. Okay, and uh, in order for us to address many of the issues that you raised, corruption, um, uh, better services to uh, to citizens, um, equity. Uh, we need to strengthen our institutions. So I think the greatest guarantor of Iraqi independence is not only that we will be a strong economy. I mean, we, we have oil, we have resources, we can do that. But I think that the, the strongest guarantor of our being an independent uh, nation that can stand and look any other country in the eye is if we can strengthen our institutions. Uh, and this is actually a, uh, something that we are on track. And uh, having been engaged in an Iraqi institution for the last uh, 14 years, I can tell you that I see incremental changes that have cumulatively making it better. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, early on when we were staffing the, the, the foreign ministry, uh, we had promotion exams. Everybody used to pass. Okay, Now people flunk. There are standards being applied. Okay. Um, one, of, one of the reasons why the ICTS is such a successful institution in Iraq is that it because it applies criteria and principles that make it a strong institution. Um, so this is the track that we're on. Uh, finding corruption is part of it. Now, uh, uh, recently we were, uh, I was in Baghdad for an ambassador's conference 
uh, and we uh, were, uh, the, the focus of this conference this year was reconstruction. Uh, last year's was liberation, if you will. Uh, but just as our army is a much better institution than, than it was a few years ago, right now we're focusing on the institutions that we need to, to, to build up to fight the battles that we need to fight, particularly with regard to corruption. And so now the, the institution that is the most in the limelight is our, is our integrity commission, uh, which, is, uh, which is actually making good progress. Um, Linda, over to you. Thank you. And I, I would add to the wise comments of the ambassador. I, I wrote a 2008 book about the surge period called Tell Me How This Ends. And chapter 15 has a list of things that uh, were widely agreed to be the critical issues to bring uh, stability to Iraq. And that list is more or less still to be done. So I think it's very important uh, for things like the full implementation of the federal federalized system. There's a decentralization law on the books. The implementation has begun to devolve the eight ministries down to the uh, provinces or governments, but it absolutely needs to be done to give that sense of local ownership uh, to the population. The debathification law needs to be um, revised the status of Kirkuk, the hydrocarbons law, etc. Those of you who follow Iraq know the list very well. Uh, and I think it will be uh, incumbent upon the, the Council of Representatives, because it is a parliamentary system, mm -hmm. to grasp this nettle and, mm -hmm. and understand that uh, these questions have legal and institutional answers, mm -hmm. and to commit to building uh, and legislating those answers. Iraq is a wealthy country. There is no reason why it can't come through this dark period, but it must find the political uh, will to do so. And I think that there is, I b firmly believe that Iraqis have no wish to be the 51st state of Iran. They are sufficiently confident now that they can move forward and set the appropriate limits on Iranian influence. The worst thing would be for the US to publicly demand or legislate X, Y, or Z conditions, because that will ensure the inflammation of Iraqi nationalism and elect the very man, Michael, you would like to see not elected. So let us work in a sophisticated way, use the strategic framework agreement to put in, I think very fairly, demand transparency conditions as the World Bank does for any further aid. Hopefully we will lock in a long-term security assistance agreement. They want it, it's our core competence. We have a, a, an advantage here over Iran and let's press that. So that's a mouthful, but that's what I would say we have to do going forward. Thanks, Linda. One of the words we often also bandy around up here on our panel would be reconciliation. And I wondered with all your practical experience for you to also to tease that out. Thank you. On how, how do we actually do that in practice? What does it mean when you say people yeah. have to reconcile after something as disastrous as ISIS? And I left that out and I apologize because I mentioned the decentralization law, but there's also this idea of bottom-up reconciliation or social cohesion, which is the 
uh, term of art being used by a lot of people. And I think it's very important that these grassroots efforts uh, be undertaken to resolve some of the conflicts in the communities at that level. Also, you have to deal with the fact that many children have been indoctrinated. There's a severe PTSD problem. People have really been traumatized by uh, life under the, the I, brutal ISIS regime. And so I think the bottom-up area is critical uh, to attend to. The parties will need to tackle the national, they don't like to use the word even reconciliation, some of them, they call it national settlement. There are this menu of issues, as I mentioned, that have to be dealt with, and I think the parliament is the the venue, but UNAMI is still there, the UN Assistance Mission. Uh, that's one of their main man mandates in addition to uh, addressing the um, uh, holding of elections in a fair and free way. And I should just say, this is a critical benchmark to make sure all those 2.6 million people get registered and are able to vote. So I think it's fine for the elections who've gone ahead, but it is incumbent upon IHEC and the Iraqi government to make sure everyone can, in fact, vote. Before you give the floor to Michael, just a couple of points I wanted to make uh, that bear on, on elections, and I should have spoken about that. Um, you know, people tend to forget that under the circumstances, what Iraq has achieved is quite remarkable. In the last, uh, you know, 14 years, uh, and it might seem trite for uh, in, in, under normal circumstances, but school exams took place on time throughout the country, including with recently with, with uh, displaced populations. It's not a small thing, except under ISIS, of course. Uh, and one of the reasons, actually, the Iraqi government was really intent on liberating Mosul is because uh, the first year uh, Mosul was occupied, the uh, curricula used uh, in the schools remained the Iraqi curricula. The second year, ISIS developed its own curriculum. And as you can imagine what it's like, and it would not have been wise to let them continue to brainwash our youth with, with it. Okay. So, um, and, and the same kind of spirit actually will allow us to hold the elections uh, on time. Uh, I think uh, the, uh, just as we, we were able to hold uh, exams on time, which require registration students, and a follow-up and, and ensuring an integrity of a, of a process, elections are the same thing. We'll, 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 uh, I think we'll follow through. And one thing that will help us uh, achieve these elections and uh, in a way that will be respected and recognized is to have international observers, and so uh, local observers as well. And so one of, the, one of the things I'm actually trying to argue for is to increase the number of support we have to bring in international observers, local observers, to make sure that these elections are as um, transparent and, and true and, uh, and fair. And in the end, you know, the person who will be Iraq's next prime minister uh, will be decided for by the Iraqi electorate. That's a great whoever whoever that might be, and and I have to tell you, these are real elections. I you know I I wouldn't bet on it. I wouldn't bet. On it. I, I have my preferences, of course, as an Iraqi would. And my, my compatriots here probably also have their own preferences. But um, these are real elections. Thanks, Ambassador. Mike, uh, over to both on the greatest um, challenge, but maybe also on 
on like how we really sort of secure this time around that there is no resurgence of, of ISIS, which is sort of, or terrorist organization 3.0, as you said, which has been sort of a US priority for a long time. So, so ISIS, we caveated in the paper, ISIS has been military defeated. And if we were to, to dig down a little bit more into the nuance, we would say that ISIS has lost territory, the ability to plant a black flag, but still operates in the Al-Qaeda model based on what they're able to do. They still are a threat. They still target the Iraqi security forces. They are still able to conduct suicide bombings in Baghdad. We've had two bombings in the last 10 days, and then we had the 27 Hashid al-Shabi killed by ISIS fighters. Uh, again, ISIS has seen Iraq and Syria as one, one continuous piece of land, piece of territory, where the United States policy stops at the border. And we have a policy in Iraq that stops at the border of Syria, and we have two policies in Syria that stop east and west of the Euphrates, but we'll get into that later, um, or, or not at all, actually. <laughs> um, so the, the challenge is, how do we keep ISIS from coming back? Again, this feels like 2011 all over again. And the one area I would defend President Obama on, a lot of people say that because President Obama left Iraq, this happened. This was already happening before we left in 2011. The Iraqi security forces had already uh, been politicized by Prime Minister Maliki. I served in the 2nd Iraqi Army Division, and there wasn't a single uh, Iraqi Army Division commander left in 2011 that we had worked with. They had been politicized. They were, they were from, from areas, uh, the majority Shia areas of Iraq. And as the federal police gets replaced in Mosul on the west side, and the Iraqi army comes in, it's important to note that it's the 15th and 16th Iraqi army divisions that were recruited from Basra and Sadr City, and not from Nineveh. And this, this question of retraining an Iraqi security force was one of the reasons we didn't stand up a brand new 2nd Iraqi Army Division, 3rd Iraqi Army Division, and 4th Iraqi Army Division when they fell after they were politicized by, by the Maliki government. Um, that call could have easily, easily been made. We didn't have to retrain these, these uh, we didn't have to train an army and put them in. We simply had to do a call for action. Say, hey, the 30,000 Sunnis and Kurds and Shia that were kicked out of the Iraqi military by Maliki because you didn't serve a a political party or a political agenda, show up at Taji Air Base and let's replenish the ranks of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. It would have been better to go into Kirkuk with the 4th Iraqi Army Division that knows the area. It would be better to go into Mosul with the 2nd Iraqi Army Division that knows the area. It would have been better to go into Talafar with the 3rd Iraqi Army Division that, again, is comprised of local military members that know the neighborhoods, know the streets, know the tribal sheikhs. The Iraqi security forces I, I would have to say one of the most important things here is there are no more Peshmerga units in the Iraqi army with the exception of one brigade uh, from the PUK side of the house that is just south of, of, uh, of Dehuk, or just south of Erbil, actually. Uh, it is a predominantly Shia force. That doesn't mean they're sectarian. I, I, and I understand that the country is 60% Shia, but at a certain point, it's not. <laughs> and as you move into northern Iraq, it should start to reflect who lives in Nineveh, who lives in, in Kirkuk province, who lives in northern Salahuddin and Diyala and, and Anbar, of course. And Sunnis need 
In 2007 and 2008, they were crying for political accommodation and reconciliation. Again, a term that Mohammed Salman said didn't exist in Arabic, but it existed in the Iraqi follow-up committee for national reconciliation, something that we engaged with day on a daily basis to ensure reconciliation was a part of the, the political space that the surge had offered. And it seems that we're there now. Mohammed Salman was in, at the conference, and he talked about reconciliation. And he's, he's the right guy to talk about it. It's, again, when you say the right things and they're heard, just like with U.S. politics, what happens afterwards? There are actually policies that go into effect that change things. Uh, I'm concerned about security backslide. Uh, I, I was in Mosul after the operation. I had more trouble getting through Asais checkpoints in the KRG areas than I did getting into Mosul. Once I got into Mosul, our car wasn't stopped at all. And there was a minimal military presence on the east side. And there were a lot of military-age males on the east side. Basically, you couldn't tell ISIS had been there. There were, there were people everywhere. I, I'm concerned it's right for security backslide. And, and that's one of the biggest issues. And I think there should be a call by a lot of the political parties as part of their platform for these upcoming elections to say that, hey, we need to rebuild these Iraqi army divisions that used to be responsible for Ambar, Nineveh, and, and Kirkuk province. And, and bring back in a, a, a force. It doesn't matter if they're Sunni or Kurdish. It shouldn't matter, right? All that should matter is that they're Iraqi. But we're not seeing Kurdish Iraqis in the Iraqi security forces, with the exception of individuals like Bawari and the CTS and other Kurds in different places. But I think Iraqis need to see that. At least when I go to Iraq, I try not to talk to, to Americans, and I try not to talk to politicians. I try to talk to Iraqis. And I talked to Iraqis uh, from Ramadi, Fallujah, Mosul. I talked to politicians from Baghdad, uh, either from the Alawi side or, or for someone else. I've been asking to go into Baghdad and talk to the other side to get my mind changed. And I'd like to be invited in to talk to them so that I can be an advocate for this, this uh, one Iraq narrative that's, that's going around and this uh, secure environment that that Iraq is now in and because ISIS off, it needs observers. So that it needs observers. I'd love um, to, to observe. Actually, we have a research center at the at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that would welcome you as a speaker. I, I would love to uh, show up. That's great. Um, there are lots of more questions I would love to ask at this panel. Uh, you can see the spectrum of, of views, and but I also know that I can see there are people out in the audience that are really itching also to get their questions in. So I would uh, now open it up for questions and show your hands. And I'll, we have a microphone that will come around. So we'll start with this gentleman here. And please uh, introduce yourself and, uh, and try to state uh, a relatively short question, not a sort of long Peter commentary. Peter Humphrey, um, Intel analyst and a, a former diplomat. I'm wondering if any of the, uh, what might be the Iranian uh, external aid entities are contributing in any way to reconstruction in Iraq. For example, the, maybe the boneyards are reconstructing Shia mosques, maybe even civil engineering projects. Is there anything going on on what we might call the foreign aid account from Iran? Thank you. Let's, let's grab a couple of questions. So let's down here in the, um, in the corner. That one over there. Yeah, you got it, yeah. Voice of America, Turkish service. Uh, Turkey was one of the biggest contributors in Kuwait. True. Mr. Mr. Ambassador, what does it mean to you? And can we say a new page is opening between two countries? 
Thanks. And then let's grab a third one down here. Uh, front here. Yeah, Mark Kimmett, I do private business in Iraq. Mike, uh, let's flash fast forward for about nine months. A new government has been formed. It is led by Hadi Al-Amri. Right. What should the U.S. policy be at that point? Well, let's let the other people answer of course, the first question. Okay. Yeah. So I have I have uh, Turkey, which I think would be the ambassador, their, their new role in a large role in reconstruction, um, and the question of Iran and and organizations that actually provide maybe Linda and the ambassador, and then Mike, you on the third question? Sure. Well, on, on Turkey, uh, you know. Um, it's a really interesting comparison between Turkey and, and, and Iran. Um, you know, uh, early on, the Turks were very reluctant to get involved politically in Iraq. But they were pushed into Iraq by their private sector, which did extremely well. We have, you know, billions of dollars in commercial exchanges with Turkey. And in fact, uh, this, will, this pledge will only serve to enhance that. Uh, I mentioned the ambassador's conference I attended. We were lodged at the uh, Prime Minister's guest house, uh, which was built, in fact, by, by a Turkish company. Um, on Iranian involvement in the, uh, in, in the reconstruction uh, effort of Iraq, I know many, many Iranian companies have actually bid on, on, on several, several major projects. Uh, one I was familiar with was the Mansouria power plant, uh, which, they competed, uh, which they competed with a French company. Eventually, the French company did win. But they, they also have bid on a number of uh, um, schools. And I'm sure that they are very much involved in um, the rebuilding and uh, um, re redevelopment of, uh, of, uh, of Najaf and Karbala. And uh, I mean, Iran is actually a major source of revenue to Iraq, if only because of the religious tourism that, uh, that uh, uh, Iraqi cities are first uh, to receive many millions of Iranian pilgrims. That's that's not aid. That's uh, actually commerce trade. On aid, on on aid, um, I don't think that the Iranians did pledge pledge anything at the at the conference in Kuwait. Linda, over over to you. Um, yes, and I, I think that is the formal answer to your exact question uh, regarding Iranian aid uh, pledges. But of course, as you probably well know, they've um, you know been involved in many areas in this model of kind of militias, the Hezbollah model of offering social services and so forth. They work through, though, a lot of locals. I mean, obviously, Qasem Soleimani's been visible out in the battlefield, but I think um, that it's very uh, interesting to watch how they have, I think, very effectively used their ties into the popular mobilization forces to conduct a variety of what you might call influence operations. Um, and very agile also in reaching out in the Sunni areas to recruit uh, Sunni population. So um, I guess if you widen the aperture a bit, there's a whole spectrum of Iranian engagement in Iraq that runs the gamut of the diplomatic, military, economic, and informational space. If I may add, uh, that's the way things should be. We have, you know, God knows how many, uh, over a thousand kilometers of common borders. Uh, historic ties, uh, you know, 
and by saying that, I'm not labeling that all as nefarious. I don't want to, you know, be be. I, I think that it's very important to understand that Iran has a natural level of influence and engagement that, whether we like it or not, is going to occur. And I'll just cite Ryan Crocker, who is one of my great teachers on the matter of Iraq. It's just a, a fact of life. And there is the religious tourism. There's a lot. But there's also a very, the legacy of a bitter war. There's the Arab-Persian divide. I mean, we just we need to be a little more sophisticated about our understanding of the Iran-Iraq relationship. And you know, historically, the US role in the region has either inflamed or made use of that kind of tension and the counterweight issue. Uh, my only real advocacy is that the US not turn its back, walk away from Iraq, and cede the playing field entirely to Iran. That would not serve US national security interests. And we're frankly, are very much in danger of that as we turn our attention uh, to other challenges around the world. Mike, there was a direct question to you, and then, of course, chime in on some of the other issues. And the interesting thing about your last comment is that's exactly what Al Fatah Party is asking for, is for the U.S. to get out, to not to turn its back, to, but to exit. And then that's an issue. So let's go back to your question, General. So nine months from now, a body wins. I would just say, um, I'm sorry. I thought you. I thought you said a body one. You're saying Amirans in that question? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let me. Okay. Let me just talk about what Iran's been able to do under Heydar al-Abadi. They've been able to do whatever they've wanted to under Heydar al-Abadi over the last four months or four years. So if Hadi al-Amiri wins, we'll we'll have roundtables like this where he's, we'll say he's not as bad as Case Kazali. Is not a, as bad as Abu Mehdi al-Muhendis. And we've worked with him before. General Barbero was an advisor to Hadi al-Amri. I sat next to General Barbero when he was talking to him and said, hey, he was, he's a commander of Bonacor. And General Barbero said, no, he's not. General Barbero now says, yes, he is. So if Hadi al-Amri wins, it's actually bad for Iran in that NATO is warning about a Hadi al-Amri victory. NATO's not concerned about having a train and equip program that is under the premiership of Iran's premier proxy in Iraq, the Badr Corps. So if Iran was smart, you'd want Haider al-Abadi to win, because again, Iran has been able to do everything it has wanted to over the last four years, and will continue to do so with the, the blessing of the United States State Department and Department of Defense as we continue to obfuscate what you and I talked about over the last year is whether or not IRGC could forces have hijacked the U.S. training equip program. Where DOD said no, Department of State said no, and now they're saying yes, in fact, they have, and we want to get those tanks back. It's not only the tanks, it's the selection of who is trained on the tanks. It's the selection of who's trained to fly American F-16s. Now, it's important uh, during 2005 and 2006, when Qasem Soleimani was conducting an assassination campaign in Iraq, is that he targeted Iraqi pilots, regardless of their sects, uh, sect. <laughs> uh, Shia, Sunni, and Christian pilots were assassinated by IRGC proxies. They do not want to ever see Iraq be a threat to Iran. Uh, the best way to do that is to be able to influence what happens in the MOD and the MOI. Again, if Amory wins, 
bad for Iran because hopefully we'll see what it is. But there will also be a concerted effort by people that will say that Javier Al-Amri is not that bad because he's not Case Kazali. I argue that he is that bad because he's acceptable to us. And he also answers directly to Iran. And then, of course, that I expect to be balanced. <laughs> or, or, I'm sorry, counter. Oh, you want a quick follow-up? No. Or, or the ambassador? Yeah, I just... Oh, yeah, wait for the mic, yeah, because otherwise we also have to... Can you delay the uh, mic for about five minutes? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just restate. Forget right, about right. the name. Right. There is a prime minister who leans more towards Iran than towards the coalition slash United States. What should the U.S. policy be? Okay. The U.S. policy should be at that time, and we've made this a policy recommendation, to move the U.S. training and equip program to our bill, to move the U.S. Uh, um, JSOC footprint to our bill to establish a Sunni Kurdish and Sunni Arab uh, security force that keeps ISIS from coming back to Sunni areas and also stops the, the, the northern land bridge that Iran is trying to establish in Iraq. That would be the military security policy recommendation, and that would actually give you leverage over Baghdad over time. Again, if you want to use levers of U.S. Treasury, secondary sanctions, being able to do certain things, you'd be able to do that. Iran should rest assured that we're not going to do any of that. We're not going to do any of that. We will promote the next prime minister, regardless of whether it's Hadi Alamari or Abadi, as a pro-U.S. bulwark against Iran. Yet, when you look at the actual makeup of the Iraqi security forces, you won't find it. When you look at the existence of the Hashid al-Shabi, not the Sistani volunteers, but the ones that actually control the PMU budget, Abu Mehdi al-Mohendis, and Hadi al-Amri, and Qasem al-Araji, um, you will have a friend in the United States Defense Department and DOS that will say it's not happening. Thanks, Mike. Um, Sorry I'll have the ambassador come look, in now, I, and then, then I'll just let others that want for the last round of questions, and I, I note your, your fingers. So, Ambassador, first. I, I have to say what I have to say is that, you know, the next prime minister of Iraq will be chosen by the Iraqi electorate, and people will have to deal with it, yes, no matter what. That's, exactly. Um, you know, exactly. uh, yeah. as, as you know, as this country proves, you can't predict that too well. True. <laughs> That's a good point here. May, may I just also add what I believe the ambassador should also say, is that any placement of US forces in the territory of Iraq will be determined by Baghdad and not Erbil. Well, that goes without saying. And, uh, and, and Washington adheres to that. Question over here. Thank you very much, Alexander Kravitz, and thank you for the panel and the very wise uh, comments as uh, Linda described them. I, I, I'd like to ask two questions. One is I wonder if the ambassador could comment on the Baghdad Erbil you know, current uh, uh, dialogue, shall we say. There's been some talk about the opening of the airports. There's also been some talk that uh, you know Baghdad might move on the Hurmala uh, field, so I wonder if he might um, give us some insights into that. And then I'd like to ask about the elections, because you know obviously all the investment and everything is going to be contingent. You know, everything is going to wait until the results of the election. And um, I wonder if again maybe perhaps the ambassador could give us some uh, walk us through, if you will. On, on how the 2.6 million IDPs are being registered and, and perhaps more important, how are they going to be able to vote? How is it going to work? I mean, if you're an Ambari refugee, uh, IDP in, in, uh, 
in you know in, in, in the Kurdistan region, how are you actually going to be able to you know to vote for your representatives? Thanks. That was two questions. <laughs> uh, over here now. Thank you. Um, and a last one in the end. I'm only going to take three. Sorry for the the rest of you who had. Um, and please, a short question. This one's for Michael. Um, you, you alluded to earlier, my name is Fred Bonin from the Daily Ripple. I'm also a gold star dad with three other kids serving. And um, <clears throat> you alluded that um, when we left uh, Iraq, it, did, did it not cause the Iraqi people to then take responsibility for their own heavy lift and in the end um, turn out to be the thing that most united them? Um, and it, would it be the same if we were still there that, through that whole time period doing the heavy lifting? question and then down here in the back all the way in the back and that's our last question yes uh stephen rasha from the catholic church in I iraq and this question is to uh, mr ambassador uh, could you speak just briefly in the time we have about the importance of uh, uh cultural pluralism uh, pluralism and uh, especially as it affects religious minorities to the social reconstruction as opposed to just the physical uh, infrastructure it's a topic we've spoken on before but but for the record uh, if you could speak uh, regarding uh, the Iraqi government's view on that thank you very much Ambassador let you start to both be the answer to the questions and any sort of final remarks oh. that you would would want to make because then we'll round oh. up around the panel on the minorities, uh, the official view of the Iraqi government is Iraq is not Iraq without its minorities. Uh, and so, uh, and to me personally, I think, I think the status and the position of the minorities going forward is going to be one of the signatures of how well we've succeeded. Um, uh, um, actually, this afternoon, I'm, I'm meeting with Senator Brownback, who is the, going to, to, to Iraq to, to follow up on this issue. Um, there's nothing I, I can say that to, to, that you know, to stress the importance of of, of this issue to, to to Iraq, and the the good thing that I that I can tell you is that uh, you know uh, we have a strong diaspora in which these minorities are very present, and they are engaged uh, in the reconstruction of Iraq. Uh, recently, um, uh, during one of the reconstruction conferences in 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 uh, Washington. Uh, Mustafa Hiti, who is in charge of reconstruction in the, the liberated areas in Iraq, received two people who represented Chaldean businessmen from Detroit who were really interested in rebuilding uh, their ancestral uh, villages and, and churches. So, um, you know, th this is important to us. Uh, I think um, uh, if you look, go through the roster of, of electoral lists, You'll find them, uh, the Iraqi minorities are very, very present. The local electoral uh, laws, I think, will guarantee them uh, at least five seats. Um, so um, I, I can't say it better than saying that Iraq is not Iraq without its minorities. On the um, registration of um, IDPs and voting, if well, uh, well, the, the I mean, the, the the good thing, you know, is that the IDPs aren't aren't really all scattered. They're 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 in localized places and camps with presence of international organizations. So registra registration can take place. I know uh, for a fact that the that the Iraqi electoral system is trying to develop a uh, an advanced um, you know uh, um, decentralized IT system for registration which should be able to incorporate 
uh, people in, 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 in different areas, uh, not in their homes in, 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 in Kurdistan or other, other places. Uh, there's actually one point that I wanted to address, which is the uh, relationships between uh, Baghdad and Erbil. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not, because uh, the, the, the details and discussions uh, evolve, but I can tell you uh, that, I, that I recently was present when, uh, when Prime Minister Abadi met with Pim uh, Nechirvan Barzani, uh, and the meetings they had it were extremely cordial. There's, a, there's an ongoing process. Um, and uh, I, I am hopeful that, uh, that you know, all of the issues that need to be resolved will be resolved. Okay. I'll give the ambassador the balance of my time. Um, the, the question about 2011, when we left, uh, what happened? <laughs> the Arab Spring, Syria happened. Syria happened. Syria happened. Syria happened. And they looked over their left shoulder and said, if we can do that here, we can do that in Iraq, yeah. and moved in. And we just got to keep that from happening again collectively. And all I would say is, is if we look, look through this sophisticated lens at Iraq, we shouldn't be shocked when we see facts, warnings, and indicators of security backslide and Iranian influence. Thanks, Mike. Linda, your um, last remarks? Yes, I would just add to this common theme. I <laughs> right. think there was, uh, there's also always been a majority Iraqi uh, membership of the ISIS animal. So it isn't just a Syria uh, beast and, and att attending to the grievances of the people um, that have been left out, I think, is the, the burden for the Iraqi government. And I think that there's, uh, with regard to the Hadi al-Amri discussion, it's very important, I think, to note there was quite a backlash on social media and so forth at that very brief um, alliance that was announced. And one of the analysts, Iraqis- Between said, a body and that, That's right. right. And one of the Iraqi analysts said to me, you know, people are very grateful for the role that the PMF played, uh, but they don't necessarily want that to be their government. So I do, again, I think holding free and fair elections is going to produce a result that might surprise uh, some of the skeptics. But nonetheless, Iraq merits continued attention as my main message. Thanks, Linda. And actually, the ambassador had one uh, on, last on, message. On, on, the, on the relationship between Iraq and the United States, uh, you know, listening to us, one might conclude that our relationship ideally would be nothing but military security. Uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, as an anecdote, uh, the day the travel ban was announced uh, in uh, early la last year, the Iraqi foreign ministry uh, had convened all the members of the committees uh, that would sit, um, uh, that would be involved in the strategic framework agreement with the United States. Uh, um, what we would like to, to see is an evolution of our relationship from something that is essentially military to something that is way more than that. Uh, I graduated from a high school that was founded by American Jesuits. Uh, my uncle is a graduate of the uh, University of Michigan. Um, you know, um, we would like to see more of this kind of involvement uh, in, in Iraq. One of the biggest successes uh, that I can count in Iraq is the American University in Soleimania. And I can tell you that uh, there are discussions now in Baghdad to set up an American university in Baghdad. 
this is the kind of relationship that we're that we're uh, eager to see. Uh, we're also eager to see your, your your you know your Fortune 500 companies to come and, and put shop and help us rebuild our country because at least we'll be insured to be uh, implementing best practice. Sixty percent of the population is under the age of 25, so it's right for that kind of relationship. Yeah. That's, I think, a great way to uh, end our uh, panel discussion today on reconstructing Iraq. It happens every day now in, in Iraq that this work takes forward. And as you can see here, um, we had a, a great debate on it. I enjoyed being up here on, uh, uh, with our panelists that had a lot of knowledge and expertise on this. And you all had a lot of questions. I know there are more that wanted to ask something. But we have to bring it to a close. And I want you all to end by uh, thanking our panelists together here. Thank you.